A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes And we're live! Hello and welcome back to another Ew! At least find a fucking tissue to pick up that ear episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Because we like to watch. My name is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. This is Walter Vinci. And joining us tonight, our semi-regular contributor, the man who likes to get high, get drunk, and most of all, likes to fuck, from the 25th frame, Mark Herney. Welcome back to the show, Mark. I'll fuck anything that moves. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, sorry. I had to lead with that. Of course, you did. Lead with that all the time, Mark. Uh, uh, what, what's new on the website? Uh, well, quite, uh, the twenty-fifth frame is uh, doing very well. We're uh, putting out. There's a lot of great content there. I just joined Criterion now, and Aaron uh, about two, three weeks ago. We have an upcoming show for Criterion Close-Up uh, where we're going to be talking. I might have teased this last time too because it's been in the can for a while. But uh, talking about uh, Hal Ashby. Um, and the, the HAL director, and uh, we they just released an episode of Indicator Now. So if you happen to be a fan of uh, physical media, Indicator Films is a great new label from the UK that has Region A and Region B stuff, and they kind of dug into that and what are, what are some of the great uh, things coming from that label. So, yeah, lots of good content, uh, fighting for, you know, not putting two podcasts out at a time. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's a good... You know, good problem to have. Lots of lots of people talking about great stuff. Excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah, subscribe to that. Uh, I I'm subscribed to a few of the shows, and uh, it's good stuff. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Glad you enjoy it. Yes, and what we like to do on the FTW podcast is find a movie that knows we've seen, watch together, and then discuss. These movies could be new, they could be old, or something that's not all over the list of shame. If you'd like to send feedback, remember to email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail dot com. This week. We are crossing off a list of shame film for Wally, David yep. Lynch, David Lynch's film Blue Velvet. But before we get into that, it is time for Yay or Nay. <laughs> this is the part of the show where we discuss what we have seen recently on our own. Mark, I have a, a couple things to mention. Uh, I, the, I guess the first one is, a, it's a mild recommendation, really, just for one uh, performance, and that is Boy Erased. Uh, it's, I'm mentioning it because of the performance of the wonderful Nicole Kidman, who I, I swear gets better with age. Uh, this film's directed by Joel Edgerton, also, in, uh, features a performance by Joel, also a very good performance, but I do think it's a interesting, important thing to, to note. It's about the son of a Baptist preacher who's forced to participate in a church supported gay conversion program. And I know there's another film out there. I think it came out last year also, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, uh, about a a woman in a similar situation. And so this was not something that I was surprised went on, but also wasn't that aware of. Um, But I'm just, again, recommending it because Nicole Kidman is uh, one of the best performances, I I think, of last year in a supporting role. So I I give it a, a, you know, Mild recommendation uh, just for her one uh, particular scene. And, uh, you know, Lucas Hedges is also great. He's not quite as good uh, as Manchester by the Sea, but he's, he's very good. So that is a mild EA for Boy Erased. The only other movie I wanted to mention, I actually just 
just saw this week is the Nightingale. This finally came locally, and I have a feeling it's only, only going to last for one week because of its subject matter. And, you know, here in Vermont, we don't do so well with uh, these types of films. Uh, I'm, so, is... I'm so jealous, Mark. It, it, it was available at our local art house for one week, uh, I'm going to mm. say three weeks ago, if that. And, uh, and I didn't have a chance to go see it. Ah, it's it's definitely worth your time. Now, um, I, I it's the second film by Jennifer Kemp. So the first movie she directed was The Babadook. 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 Oh, you do it so much better. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Uh, yeah, I, I really love that film. I think that was my favorite uh, horror film of that year, if you call it a horror film from I think that was at 2014. But this movie reminds me of what I was kind of wrestling with. The thing we joke of uh, with me when I get to guest on your lovely show is Mark likes depressing movies. <laughs> and why does Mark, quote unquote, like depressing movies? Uh, why does he tend towards them? And I, I, I kind of have a little bit of, a, of an answer for myself uh, that I'm going to pose here and talk uh, for a minute about the movie. I think the reason is, for me, I'm trying to answer the question of, it feeds into our main review too, I think a bit. The question that is, it's an unanswerable question, probably. Like, you know, is there a God uh, that we won't know until we pass? Uh, and we may never know if there isn't a God. But the question is, why is there pain? Why is there pain in this world? I, I just question why we need to, why do people need to suffer? Why do animals need to suffer? Why do, why do plants need to suffer? Why is there suffering? So, and I think the Nightingale kind of wrestles with that. So I, I, I was engrossed by this movie fully. Um, I, I do think it's a little long. It's two and a quarter hours and it does kind of, it never really drags, but it does reach a point where it's not, it's really, it doesn't feel like it's really propelling forward. It just kind of reaches that point. Um, so there, there are some points where, uh, I think Walter, I think would be invested. I certainly would recommend it for her mono, but there is a little bit of, you know, slowness and artsy fartsy bullshit going on, <laughs> um, in a few scenes. And so, but I, I think overall, uh, have you seen it, Walter? I have not. Okay. You may, you may be on board and, and Tim, I, I think, you know, probably a tough sit for you. Um, I, I know, these movies can be kind of, kind of hit and miss for you from, from what I can tell. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, I, but like I said, I was very invested. Um, there is a, there's a true physicality, uh, in this f film. Maybe that's obvious showing the, the power that men feel they need to exude. And there is a definitive, uh, central relationship that I think is very important, uh, between a, a woman and an Aboriginal man, uh, in Tasmania that I, I think is a relationship and, um, you know, interaction that works really well for this, this film. So, uh, really, I really important, great aspect ratio. It's shot in one thirty-seven, So it's kind of, um, I, I was trying to think of other films, film spotting mentioned, you know, similar to Meek's cutoff where oh, really? it's, yeah, the, the, the focus is, is especially on the people, you know, the, the landscape really is a character, but it doesn't focus on the landscape itself. So the film becomes very, very claustrophobic. So, um, the, the other folks I went with generally, it was kind of a, a mixed bag for them. 
um, not on their top 10 list. This one has the chance to reach the top 10. I have a feeling it's probably going to be more top 20 material, but uh, certainly is one to catch up with this so year, I think. You you brought the kids then? Absolutely. Yeah, they were <laughs> totally on board. Uh, it's, it's a rough go. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I haven't squirmed as much in a, a in a film as i have in this one that's saying something for the guy that likes depressing um, movies so. i'm really i'm really but, hoping this hits uh, some sort of home viewing uh before the end of the year you think it'll make uh, right. your your top 10 i'm thinking top 20 probably oh, okay. it's, it, i mean it's right now it's actually probably sitting in the lower top 10 lower to mid so I, i'm thinking it's probably gonna end up top 20 because gotcha. there's some good stuff coming but it's there uh, I got a couple of things. Uh, so y- you know those times when you're watching a movie and you know it could be brilliant when it actually is just pretty good? And those times where you could almost feel those missed opportunities to carry it over the top that would have made it like an all-timer? There's like potential for greatness that's just on the periphery. You know those times? Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, that's what Hustlers is. Now, that's hmm. not to say I had a, a, a good time watching this movie. You know, th- this is kind of like a surprise hit. It was the number two movie just behind uh, It Chapter Two and its second weekend uh, this past weekend. And uh, and there was a lot of praise coming up uh, as the week progressed about this movie that was kind of unexpected. And a lot of it focused on Jennifer Lopez's performance. As for the for the movie itself, for anybody who isn't aware, it's uh, inspired by the viral New York Magazine article uh, that follows a crew of savvy former strip club employees who band together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients, focusing on uh, just before the 2008 crisis and afterwards, uh, and then how the they scammed these uh, Wall Street guys after the, the crash, when uh, a lot of people, especially these... These uh, strip club employees were hard up for business uh, and money. But the thing is, Hustler so, tries so effing hard to be a Martin Scorsese film that it really doesn't understand that tonal balance of what makes a movie like Goodfellas and The Wolf, the Wolf of Wall Street so great. You know, there's like an ebb and flow to the material that the information that... Uh, and that information that has to allow us to understand but never kind of empathize with these criminals... Uh, or at least these people who are I- engaging criminal activity. And I can't tell if the director wants us to feel bad for these women. Uh, you know, I get that she wants us to understand, like, this hypocrisy and imbalance of the flow of money and to, to see the, the crap that this, these women have to deal with on a daily basis. But when it comes down to it, I, I understand their desire to scam these these filthy men from their filthy money, but why should I empathize with them? Uh, and they're escalating greed and those that criminal activity that I talked about. So it, as for the tone, it's v- rather flatlined. It never goes too high on their highest moments. It never goes low enough at their at their lowest moments. Um, but, you know, I did enjoy it still. It, it, it's a crowd-pleasing film. I, I, I saw it on Monday night, and for a Monday, it was a pretty crowded theater, and a lot of groups of women seeing this, you know. So it's, it's, uh, the target audience is, is women, even though there's a lot of nudity. <laughs> it, it's... Uh, you know, geared towards, you know, uh, a type of female empowerment. Um, and Jennifer Lopez, you know, this is the ty- her type of, of performance that is is geared for an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, you know, the, the, the Academy is a lot more forgiving, I think, uh, when it comes to supporting actor uh, performances and nominations. Uh, and this is the type of thing where she has the right amount of gravitas that carries the film and works against uh, the other main character uh, who's played by Constance Wu. 
Um, and it looks, it's a great looking film, you know, the, the lighting and, and the close-ups, uh, in certain places is good, but, um, and it, it's worth a watch, you know, especially if you have, you know, watching with friends while having some drinks. So I'm not saying it, it's, it's awful. It's just disappointing because there's a lot more potential for what could have been a superb film. Uh, so. Did you see it with your wife? No, no. I saw. I see all no. movies by myself. I don't watch anything with anybody except uh, <laughs> when I go out on a mandate with Wally. All right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and we and we go to the worst uh, five guys in the area. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, mild mild yay for for hustlers. And then you know I've been telling you guys that I've been doing uh, catch up on uh, best of decade contenders, mm-hmm. and that's also rewatches. So I rewatched uh, Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Yeah, that's a that's a movie that we talked about on uh, all four of us here actually talked about. Yes, that's right. We and paired uh, it with Personal Shopper, I think it yep. was absolutely, absolutely. Um, and a lot had been made at the time and uh, since of the parables, the religious parables of that movie. And I had said at the time that I didn't pick up on it during that first viewing. And it, but it's hard to argue those interpretations. It's it's very obvious, especially on a second watch. It's it's extremely obvious. But I still see it as an analogy for celebrity relationships, uh, how the male is uh, adored and idolized, while the female, whether that female is famous or not, is left to the sidelines, kind of seen as an object of affection, uh, expected to follow suit with everything the guy says and does. I, I love when films, you know, it, it seems like the the director's vision is fully clicking on all levels, and I think that is apparent in this movie. I think Aronofsky is laying bare all those desires and feelings and emotions and and every part of this film just works. Uh, It's full out bonkers. (laughs) Man, I just, my, I had a similar reaction as the first time I watched it. It's like my, my mouth is kind of agape, but I was just drawn to the screen as, as it progressed. (laughs) It's, it's insane. Um, And the look of the film, even though it's very, it's very dim and there's a lack of brightness throughout the film. It's the color palette is is drab and dreary, but it works in conjunction with those ideas and themes and, and the mood of the film. Um, and and I love the camera work that uh, where it's it's almost always a shoulder level front or behind Jennifer Lawrence's head, and it allows us to understand everything that she's going through. Uh, so yeah, needless to say, this will make my top twenty of the decade. It's 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 a fantastic film. It's fantastic. Uh, high, uh, high yay for that. Not everybody's cup of tea, though. No, uh, I, I would never recommend this to every single person, <laughs> ever. I, I recall correctly. I think Mother was either my number. I think it was my number one movie, or maybe my number two mm. when it came out when we did our top ten of the year. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good one. So uh, I recommend that, uh, Hermano. All right, <clears throat> only got one thing. Uh, very far removed from it, though. Tim is forcing me to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, it's called Under the Silver Lake, directed by Ro- uh, David Robert Mitchell, starring uh, Andrew Garfield, Riley Keough, Topher Grace, who I watched this so long ago, I didn't even remember he was in it. I still can't even picture him. Topher, yeah, me too. I can't picture him either. He's in this movie? I, I, yeah, it says he is. I don't remember if I recall. Maybe he was in disguise. Maybe he's that guy Gosh. towards the end. I mean, I, I watched this movie back in <laughs> June, so I'm pretty far removed as well. I think I watched it around the same time, June, maybe end of June. Uh, but I remember being, uh, remember hearing at least that it was. Uh, do you guys say divisive or divisive? I think you say either divisive or divisive. Yeah, either one works. Okay, 
I'm just trying to get you guys' opinion. I think I, I'm going to fall on, on the camp of, I think I really liked it, actually. Um, I, de- I definitely tend to like films like this that are not very literal. I mean, on some aspects, it, it's it's literal, and then on other, it's an other hand. Um, on the other hand, it's like it's kind of trippy in the way that like our main review is today. It, it completely reminded me of a film like Blue Velvet, um, in this kind of strange journey that's started with a strange occurrence and what drives Andrew Garfield to um, kind of go after this girl and. Uh, he starts to just discover like this weird mystery surrounding this this girl that like a, a kind of new world he wasn't privy to prior was all of a sudden opened up to him and he's very curious and it's kind of like that whole human curiosity thing that's kind of propelling him forward as to like what's going on and um, very similar to like you know the comic locking character in in our later review, but um, you know I yeah. I'll, you say Blue Velvet. I was reminded of five films watching this. Oh, really? The Long Goodbye, Body Double, Eyes Wide Shut, Mulholland Drive, actually, and Inherent yep. Vice. Yeah, Mulholland Drive was the other one. Um, Inherent Vice I can kind of see, too. But, yeah, just kind of a strange journey, you know, meeting a bunch of strange characters. Um, I mean, there were some interesting scenes. I think the one that I think I, I most gravitated to was when he meets that he meets this character who... Uh, who describes himself as the creative force behind like music yeah. that was popular and stuff like that. Yep. I think it's specifically music he focuses on, right? Yeah. Yeah, like he was behind like a bunch of hit songs and stuff like that. And I know the film's trying to say something there, and I wish it was fresher in my mind because I remember having a, an interpretation of that scene, and um, I can't quite recall it now. But uh, yeah, I remember really enjoying that scene. Um and again, like I, I don't feel like the the film. I remember it feeling that it didn't finish strong, but again, it's like one of those things where it's more about the journey than the destination. So this yeah, overall, what, I, I enjoyed it. This is one of those films where I can't tell what Wally would think. Like it, it, he no could, way he, he likes this. Well, no, no he, way he could go either way. I think he could really get into this movie, or about twenty minutes in, he'd be like, "Fuck this shit." <laughs> um, well, I I think if. See, it's one of those things because, like, I, I definitely was reminded of someone like David Lynch as, as I was watching this because it has some sort of his like trademarks and kind of the way that the film flowed. But I feel like it, he doesn't handle this the material as well as someone like David Lynch does, and it doesn't oh, no. fully go David Lynch. It's kind of like a dipping a toe in. So I, that's on that level, I feel like Wally would just gravitate more to like. This is artsy fartsy bullshit. No, no, mind you, this is from the same director as It Follows. Yes. And Wally, were you a fan of that movie? Uh, I, I thought the monster was kind of dumb, but overall, I dug the movie. Hmm. Yeah, but it, it's it's so different than It Follows. It, it yeah, I don't know. It's it. it well, see, I I tend to think that Wally doesn't like films that that are just kind of dancing around what they're about. Hmm. <laughs> You know what I mean? I feel like this is one of those films where it's like it's not very literal. It's not like a A to B to C story. It's like it's like dipping its toe into a lot of different things. And but, I but feel like on that level, he loves David Lynch and Nicholas Winding Griffin. <laughs> yes, I know it's it's weird, but like other there's other times where he's just there have been films like this and he did not like them. Yeah, and I'm like I just never know. But I, I just feel like I, I I don't know. I just don't think he would like this. 
but I liked it, so it's yeah. guys wow this cake certainly is big oh hi mark i got it for tim's birthday happy birthday tim yeah happy birthday tim uh i i really didn't want anything for my birthday but wally why is this cake so big it's a very special cake your majesty why are you talking like that it's it's what skeletor tells randor during secret of the sword really yes stop and hordak is the cake too but you know what show never needs icing? The In Session Film Podcast. That's right, Tim. The In Session Film Podcast is JD and Brendan. Mm, what am I and Brendan jumping out of that cake? What was that, Tim? What? No, nothing, nothing. Each week, the In Session Film Podcast chooses a movie to review. Then creates a top three list based on what they just saw. This week, the In Session Film Podcast is reviewing the surprise hit, Hustlers. In a top three list of performances by musicians. You can find their show on Apple Podcasts by searching for You Guessed It. The In Session Film Podcast. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So if you're in the mood for more great movie reviews and discussion, then check out the In Session Film Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. Okay, Tim, ready for your surprise? What the? That looks like Dennis. How did the Hopper bot get in there? Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Don't anyone move. Okay, now it is time for another installment of Mark Carney's Criterion 101. This is where Mark indulges us with his extensive love and knowledge of the Criterion Collection. Mark, hit me. Please, hit me. <laughs> sure, would love to, Tim. I'm going to hit you with. Uh, we're going to have a little discussion today. Criterion 101. Um, I, m- myself personally, I've had a little bit of a re- getting a reacquaintance with CDs and especially vinyl of late. And as folks may or may not know, vinyl records have had a resurgence. I don't know if it's the uh, really why. You know, is it is it the hipsters? Is it uh, why is it a thing? Are there uh, you know, or more of a collector mentality, which really feeds into uh, what I wanted to talk about today is Criterion is one of the original companies to really uh, push physical releases of movies. Of course, as we know, there was VHS, 
uh, started in the 70s, I think, uh, very popular in the 80s, but at the same time was Criterion releasing the better format, uh, releasing on the better format at the time, Laserdiscs. And of course, with all the supplemental features and the um, you know commentaries, they were the first ones to come come out with commentaries. But you know, looking at the reason I'm just comparing it with music is looking at the numbers. Like movies, streaming music really has taken over uh, the recording industry and the movie industry. So the most money that's being spent. Uh, really is on the, the the streaming services on both fronts, and especially with uh, on the entertainment side, people are spending more money than last year on um, entertainment in general. However, the the money is being spent, at, like I said, on on the streaming side. But there is still a larger contingent of people. Uh, it's I think the numbers are in the yeah, at the media report this year. Uh, vinyl was at you know 225 million, CDs were at 247 million, CDs declining, vinyl increasing. So it's gaining a market share. This technology that is you know that much that much older, and so you know we're familiar with that. You're seeing records in your Barnes and Nobles, your Targets, your WalMarts are all carrying it, and uh, you know I don't know. I think a lot of people locally probably have more uh, local record stores than they used to. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, are we going to see any kind of a resurgence uh, for movies similar to what we're seeing with music? Again, keeping in mind that, um, you know, streaming services for, you know, for music still represent 62%. Uh, and like I said, for home entertainment spending, it's gone up to, it was, um, it's 20, it was 23 billion in 2018. That's up almost 12% from the year before, but the disc sales continue to fall. Um, even with, you know, 4k Blu-ray being more popular that the spending there is increasing, but the overall physical spending is decreasing. So what I wanted to pose to you guys is, um, you know, we, with a physical music disc seemingly, you know, on the rise, at least a bit, you know, gaining some market share, what is it going to take for um, the movie industry to go in that direction? And will it go in that direction? Uh, we've seen a, you know, really a consolidation of the boutique labels uh, where less and less you're seeing the, um, you know, the studios like Fox and Warner Brothers releasing their own physical format and instead licensing their movies to companies like, you know, Scream and Shout Factory and Kino and Criterion to release them themselves. So what I, I'm curious what you guys think could be uh, really cause a, a shift and a boon into um, how people, you know, consume and maybe collect their movies. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll go alphabetical, uh, start with Hermano. What do you think? And, and I, I should mention too, if you don't think there's any, that anything's going to change, you know, don't, I don't want to direct the conversation that way. If you, if you think it's just going to continue on the streaming side and there's no hope, then, you know, Hey, that's an answer. Well, that's probably where I'm leaning. Um, I, I rarely purchase physical media anymore. Uh, aside from maybe the occasional like video game uh, where, you know, storage is an issue there. Sometimes I can't buy everything digitally, but when it comes to like movies, um, I, I rarely reach for a physical disc, even if I own it, I'll look, I'll check first to see if it's streaming. Um, 
just because convenience is just easier because I, I'm the type of person that I don't have all my movies organized alphabetically or anything like that. Like in a lot of cases, like uh, I've run out of space where I store them and I have things stacked in front of other Blu-rays. You're giving me hives so right now. <laughs> I know I'll probably, yeah, a lot of people probably just threw up in their mouths. Um, you know, the people that are really hardcore into like, you know, buying extra cabinets to store their physical um, media and stuff like that. Like I just, I think at, at, there was a time when I was really invested in that. And then I just periodically over the years have let it go. And I'm less interested in buying every film and I'll buy the occasional Blu-ray for films that I think really warrant it. You know, like if there's a nice release of some film, like on the Criterion or a pack, a box set or something like that, of uh, films that I don't already own, I'm, I might consider it. But I, I'm all for everything streaming. I just think the 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 whole streaming world right now is in disarray. Like I, I hate every week. It seems like there's a new, you know, company that's coming out with their own streaming service and. I'd, I'd like to see it more consolidated. I liked it back in the day when I just had to worry about, you know, like Netflix, Amazon, and maybe Hulu occasionally. Um, now it seems like everyone has a streaming service. Like I think NBC just announced one, um, you know, things like that. Like I just, I, I don't want to have to like subscribe to like a bazillion different places to, to try to find individual films. I think that that's a little bit too much chaos for me. Uh, and you know, costly of course. Um, but yeah, as far as like like the resurgence of like certain things, like you know niche things, like you know vinyl and stuff like that, like I I kind of get that and on one hand because it's like a nostalgia, I'm sure for some people that you know loved listening to records when they were younger, and I guess for like the newer generation that never got to experience vinyl, you know when they were younger, and it's it's only around you know here and there. Like um, we just had a a record store open in the last couple of years downtown where i live and supposedly mm. it's prospering pretty well um so i you know i'm always surprised like when i heard, when i initially heard like oh a record store is opening what the hell like and they almost exclusively sell vinyl and i'm like that's crazy like the, I, especially downtown where we live like stores open and close you know within like six months sometimes because it's just a, a tough business and especially when you're you're selling something niche like you know vinyl um yeah i mean i guess to to pass it off to someone else like i i think i i definitely lean towards like streaming and like it, it the, i think physical media for me is going to be more niche like vinyl is anyone that has listened long enough has has known that i i i visit the library on a regular basis and i i visit them for uh, to pick up all these movies because you know a lot of them aren't available on the streaming services that i have and stuff like that and, and it also i just prefer physical media because there is uh, a quality issue a, 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 an improvement uh, on physical media than there is on streaming services on streaming services you have to rely on the source you have to rely on your own internet connection and you also have to rely on the device that you're watching it on so if i'm watching it on a device that's that's on wi-fi uh, i may have a couple of skips here and there i may have a a, a brief loss of connection for whatever reason uh, you know the skips may be audio or they may be visual and and I that interrupts my my viewing, you know, I it literally interrupts it in more ways than one. 
uh, so I can get taken out of whatever I'm being drawn into. So a, a physical copy, whether it be a DVD or a Blu-ray, is much more preferable because the, the chances of something skipping or, or a loss in quality is, is far more minimal. This thing where you talk about these uh, studios are less inclined to release their own movies on physical media because of the increase in the the amount of streaming services, you know, I, I think it was inevitable. The the amount of people who have been purchasing less and less physical media as well right. as being reliant on their internet devices, uh, the writing's been on the wall. But when it comes to those. Uh, boutique labels like you've talked about they're the saving grace for the collectors out, outside of just Criterion you know the, those other ones I, I see I go to Kino Lorber's website and there's movies I've never heard of never heard of and I'm like mm. wow this is amazing and, and most of those movies are someone's favorite movie or very nostalgic uh, pieces of, of media for somebody out there so it, there is a market for something for for, uh, for almost any kind of uh, media that's been produced in the past. So when you make it available as an upgrade for something that probably wasn't available, maybe it, uh, a specialty VHS tape back in the day, uh, that's a that's a saving a saving grace, and it's like an oasis for a lot of people who prefer for uh, physical media. Uh, I'll even take the example of a movie I talked about a couple of weeks ago in Brian De Palma's Raising Cain. And how there was a fan edit that re-edited the movie according to the original script. And yeah, I just added that to my wish list based on what you were talking about. Yeah, it's, it's and, amazing. And uh, Brian De Palma saw that and liked it so much that when Shout Factory contacted him to ask him if it was, if they could release the movie, he said yes, but also put this re-edit on the film on the on the blu-ray as a director's cut and so that's amazing and it's it's a better experience overall uh so so those type of boutique labels that offer these these extras that won't be available on on streaming the streaming services i think is also another boon so uh, yes i am pro physical media is there is there something that you think is going to hmm. you know being pro physical media do you, is there something that you some thing that you would see in the future as really being the savior of physical media really you know helping it gain a market share bringing back um it's one of the things you have you obviously you have very few video stores left but you also have very few physical stores selling movies you can't go and buy movies uh in, a, in as many well, places this, anymore you this... have a very limited selection at like a walmart or target Every, is there... as with everything it revolves around money and one of the things i've been looking at is is i'm really wondering like how is disney plus going to make it on a seven dollar a month subscription when when supposedly their entire catalog is going to be available. Now, I don't know if it's going to be on a rotating basis, similar to, I don't know, stuff you see on Netflix come and go, but obviously they have, they're streaming all of the stuff that's available, uh, you know, to them. They don't have to worry about licensing, anything like that. Uh, so it, it all comes down to money. So if studios don't see enough revenue for the films that were run theatrically and they start putting on their streaming service, uh, I think that is somehow it would be the saving grace of or actually you would see an, an increase in the future in physical media from the studios. So I, I think that's the only way. Uh, 
I'm trying to think like uh, Warner Brothers is is going to be doing this HBO Max and putting up their uh, a lot of their catalog on this uh, streaming service and and if if the early reports of it's still going to be the same amount of money as what HBO costs now, once again, I don't know how they can justify not increasing their subscription model <laughs> for for the amount of content that they're going to have. Yeah, and then not ga- getting anything on on physical media releases. Uh, I, I, I don't get it. So I, I think it would. It, it's all going to ro- uh, revolve around that. To be honest with you. Yeah, yeah it's, it seemed like the. I, I thought maybe the streaming services in some instances were going to it start releasing more of the the supplements but it seems like that's well, kind of also gone back you know netflix does release their stuff on physical media you can buy uh, most of their well-known uh tv shows uh on on dvd and blu-ray uh so it, it's it, it mm. isn't without a precedent there right still no roma though i keep wondering if criterion's going to do roma oh, but. interesting what do you think, Walter? I'm curious. Okay, so you're talking to somebody who only a couple weeks ago canceled his Netflix disc shipping. Oh, shit. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't really using it all that much because a lot of the stuff that we're, we've been reviewing is has been streaming. So my thing was, well, I'm not going to pay for something I haven't really had a chance to sit down and watch because I need to be able to sit down through a DVD player and you know, sit for a couple hours and watch the whole movie. So I can understand how streaming is caught on school because you can, if you're on the bus and you have time, you want to catch an episode of Mindhunter, you can just load it up on your phone and off you go. Uh, that being said, though, I love my physical media and I want all the goodies. I want the behind the scenes. I want the director's commentary. I want to know what was how this movie was put together. And that's where the physical media comes in. And I think that in the short term, what you're going to see, I think the one way that they could go to keep the physical media system going is to give you goodies. Uh, special edition, you know, steel boxes. I, I I went out and I purchased um, the 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 Dark Crystal when they, they released the anniversary edition with the little book in it. Because I want the little book and I want a, an upgraded Blu-ray for my movie, um, and I think you're gonna. I think if you see more of that, uh, there's another. Oh, I wish I remember the name of the 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 company that I that I got it from, uh, but there was a limited run of the uh, the when we all went to go see Suspiria, there was the, they got a hold this uh, DVD company, and I forget where they're from and the name of it. But they got a hold of the that cut, that print, and made a bunch of limited edition steel books, and they were like fifty bucks a piece. Mm. But they're limited edition. You if you're gonna get it, you get it now, and if you don't get it, too bad. You know. Uh, so I wanted it after seeing them, after finally seeing the movie, I was like, I gotta have this. I want, and it comes with like a special card. Uh, I still have it in its in its uh, in its wrapper because I don't want to open it, but I wanted it because I wanted all the goodies. And I think that if companies Companies are going to release their, their probably I'd say they're probably they're probably going to stick with their more revenue generating movies, the the, the more blockbustery ones, to do uh, you know special edition you know collectors boxes and things like that. And I think eventually, if the market can can bear it, they may be able to release you know the smaller run titles. Barring that, what's going to keep the physical media 
market open after that will be the secondhand stores because mm. I think part of part of this whole vinyl thing is its scarcity. So you have these you know record shops like Purchase Street Records who goes out they go out to like Japan and like other countries to go find rare vinyl to bring to their shop and it's a sense of pride for your collection to have this you know limited edition print of say you know Leonard Skinner well uh, there's an album cover where they're on the airplane like they they took a picture at an airport with the airplane that they died in during the crash you know and, and if you can find that cover that is worth you know some bucks and it's 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 something that a music aficionado will have as a pride of their collection you know um, another example i can use are like my transformers collection i have an original megatron in the box and i got that in a sweet deal um but it's one of the prizes of my collection. I'm not going to get rid of it for anything. And I think that these secondary markets, if they, if these companies can produce even small runs of, of their, of their films in physical media, I think these secondary markets are going to keep it alive because people mm. like me are going to want that that rare copy of Suspiria, that steel box of RoboCop. You know, it doesn't matter how ridiculous the movie is. If something that if something that you that you really enjoyed watching, you're going to want that special edition. And I think that the secondary shops are going to be the way to get it. Mm. It kind of is. It's similar to uh, when I was collecting Star Wars uh, figures for a while. The some of the rarest figures were actually the ones that were released right at the end of the the run, like eighty five, I think it was. So it was after Return of the Jedi, and it was kind of when you know Star Wars was waning, and so there were very few uh, of these figures released. And so I'm I'm wondering if you know, like you're saying, Walter, with the number of copies that are out there. You take something like the third man from Criterion that was released and then went out of print very quickly, made it especially rare. And it's also a beloved film. There's just less copies out there. So, you know, the the number of, uh, you know, the value increases. Uh, pretty much every Criterion movie that have got, that has gone out of print, maybe save like your RoboCop or your Silence of the Lambs where there were very many copies. Once it went out of print, its uh, prices shot up very, very quickly and it became a collector's item because... Um, mo most of the releases, you know, don't sell a ton, uh, especially uh, films that aren't as well known. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. Um, something I've been thinking about with Blu-rays, and I I don't really have an answer. I I you know wanted to get your opinions. I I probably tend a lot towards what you were saying, Tim. That you know I feel like the boutique labels will keep it alive as long as they can. You have a company like Kino. Like you said, that just has so they're releasing so many movies. They probably have the biggest catalog right now. Um, not always the best releases. Like David Lynch doesn't like their copy of uh, Lost Highway because they didn't work with him on it. But um, at least they're getting it out there. And, you know, the supplements is still a great selling point for the movies that you love. It's still, I agree, is the best format. I hate the crush that you see when you're streaming a movie, the crush of the blacks. Mm. Um you know, it just it drives me crazy. I, I, I'm watching it. And even with a new movie, I know I'm not watching it the best way I can, you know, other than watching in the theater. So I I tend to only rent with Amazon credits, you know, shipping credits and uh, through watching Netflix and Hulu. But I, I still don't do that very often. I prefer getting a Blu-ray rental from Redbox or Netflix uh, if I can or from my library, um, especially later in the year when I'm trying to catch up with movies. That's when I subscribe to Netflix DVD. And uh, yeah, lastly, I mean, I've double dipped on a couple of the same format already. I've uh, I've bought two Blu-ray copies of uh, 
Blue Velvet and Doctor Strangelove because they came to Criterion and I was I was happy to do it. So um, I, I feel like something and that's why I want to ask the question. I feel like something is going to keep this alive. There's enough of, you know, you've seen uh, physical music wax and wane and gaining gaining resurgence and it feels like we're on the downswing of physical media for movies but it also feels like something uh will probably um you know bring that back to back to life so thanks for discussing guys Mm -hmm. lastly i just wanted to briefly touch on the the september releases so we have uh, from the criterion collection uh september 3rd is usually about five or six releases a month uh there was fists in the pocket um from Marco Belloccio, who uh, that is a, an up upgrade of an existing DVD. On the 10th, we had uh, another Bengali director. Great to see the cloud cap star. I'm not going to pronounce uh, the, the director's name, but um, the Apu trilogy is one of my favorite trilogies of all time. And uh, I love seeing more Bengali film in the collection. So that's great to see. Clooney Brown coming out, uh, came out on the 17th. So yesterday, Uh, That's from Ertz Lubitsch. He's a a great uh, classic director. Highly recommend seeing some of his. I need to see many, many more. Probably my favorite cover of the year so far, and maybe ever from Criterion, is Polyester from John Waters. Also came out yesterday. Uh, Just uh, Google search it. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful throwback to um, (laughs) just a, yeah, it's, um, you know, you, you could say it's not not melancholy. It's not the word. This is a particular type of movie I'm trying to think of uh, to describe it as. But um, check out the John Waters uh, cover for uh, Polyester. And going as a couple more coming out this month. The 24th is The Circus from Charlie Chaplin. So great to see another Chaplin in the collection. And lastly, uh, Local Hero by Bill Forsyth, uh, Forsyth, I believe it is, which is also most well-known to me uh, for featuring a Mark Knopfler uh, soundtrack. So those are the September Criterion releases, and that's Criterion 101. Mavericks.com, broadcasting current box office breakdowns, movie news, and reviews. Now for your hosts, Jason and Trevor. Hey now, even though we're over 200 episodes deep into the Movie Mavericks podcast, it's still not too late to start listening. Where every show we give you 10 truths, 20 lies, and a bunch of Hollywood secrets. It's like existentialism slipping into nihilism. MovieMavericks.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Okay, let's talk about Blue Velvet. All right. The first thing I need is to get into her apartment and open a window that I can crawl into later. How are you going to do that? Right out in the car. I happen to have some old overalls and a bug spraying rig. I will go to her apartment. I will be the pest control man. I will spray her apartment. 
After a few minutes, you knock on the door, drawing her attention away from me, at which time I will then jimmy a window. And what am I supposed to say when she comes to the door? You will be a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> I have some awake magazines for you. I don't need very much time, just a few seconds. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a good daydream, but actually doing it's too weird. It's too dangerous. Oh, Sandy, let's just try the first part. No one will suspect us, because no one would think two people like us would be crazy enough to do something like this. Have a point there. The plot, the discovery of a severed human ear, leads a young man on investigation related to a beautiful, mysterious nightclub singer and a group of psychopathic criminals who have kidnapped her child. Fun! The director, David Lynch. The actors, Isabella Rosalini, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, Dennis Hopper, and Laura Dern. Mark, Mark, uh, I, I, this obviously was not the first time you had seen this movie. No, no, no. I, no. I, I can't remember the, exactly the first time, but I've seen it quite a few times. Mm-hmm. And, and what did you think on this revisit? I, I I love it every time. Uh, this is I. So I, I guess I'll, a good way to set it up is um, you guys know I love David Lynch. Most cinephiles do, and uh, I, I feel like he's had a masterpiece in every decade um, that I always go back to. I, I I enjoy every one of his movies, and some are just you know top tier to me. So in the 1970s, he had his first film, Eraserhead, that I consider a you know a surreal masterpiece. Uh, in the 1980s, he had Blue Velvet, which is one of the best movies of the 80s. Anyone that says um, that, so you know, there's how I feel about it. Anyone that says there aren't good movies in the 80s is uh, a moron. <laughs> uh, look at Blue Velvet. Uh, in the nineties, so this is a bit of a cheat, but he had, uh, Twin Peaks season one. So, and the last episode of, of, of the season, season two. Um, so I, I think, you know, if you can count television, uh, or maybe you say fire walk with me, uh, Twin Peaks could count. I, I could see someone making a case maybe for wild at heart or lost highway. Uh, I do feel like I need to revisit lost highway a few more times, but you could just say Twin Peaks nineties. In the 2000s, uh, my favorite film of his is Mulholland Drive. So that's a masterpiece. And then I thought maybe we were going to miss out on the 2010s because you know, we had Inland Empire in 2006. He hadn't made a movie this whole decade. But of course, you know, as Harmano knows, uh, it maybe it's a movie. Sure, it's a movie. Twin Peaks The Return came out. <laughs> so he's covered every masterpiece every decade from David Lynch. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like this is really... Um, you know, there, there's a lot of great things in his in his early movies, like The Elephant Man and Eraserhead, and uh, even Dune. Uh, but the the opening of this movie, in of itself, really is like a Lynch manifesto. Like this is what you are going to get from David Lynch. Really looking at what lies beneath the surface. Uh, I love the um, the shot. You know, it starts with the it's the blue sky and the white picket fence down to the flowers and the um, you know the the fire truck waving their hands as they drive by. I mean, that's that's just a, um, you know, it's small town America, um, the, the suburbs, uh, sense of community. But then you go under the the ground and there's the shot of the bugs that I just love so much. And I, I think of, you know, of course, um, Antichrist with chaos reigns. Uh, <laughs> there is chaos under the surface. Um of where, you know, what we see as a, just a, you know, idyllic civilization, the battle going, but going on beneath the surface in nature. And I, I think really with that shot, you're immediately put on edge. 
And I, I think the, of, you know, the characters of Jeffrey Beaumont and maybe to a lesser extent, Sandy <laughs> Williams, they show that they really are good people uh, and they are considered good, but everyone has a dark side. Uh, is that, you know, because of, you know, curiosity or are they born that way? Is it inherent in our nature? Um, so it's, and I know this movie is rough and it, it uh, I was reading about some of the walkouts. There was one gentleman whose uh, pacemaker died during the movie, but once his pacemaker was uh, replaced, he went back in so he could, you know, finish the film. Uh, and th there were a lot of walkouts early and it, it has become kind of a cult film, barely made its money back, uh, but has grown in stature uh, over the decades. And it's one of the two, um, or one of the three director, best director nominee nominations for David Lynch, uh, with this Mulholland Drive and Elephant Man all well deserve, um, and I, I think if you are looking at maybe, even though this movie is difficult, maybe this is like the best starting point for David Lynch. If you really want to dig into his movies and and see if you are a fan of his work, maybe this is where you start. But I it's completely one of agree my with you, Mark. Completely agree with you. This is nice. easily his most digestible so far. Uh, Wally, this was a first-time watch for you. Yes, it was, yeah. and I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, it's it was a little. All right, first off, the opening to this movie is I, I already put a smile on my face with the singers singing about logs in a place called Lumberton, and the with the tree crashing thing, and like all like the little like weird isms are like welcome to Lumberton, where people know how to use their chainsaws, and I'm like. This is what I love about David Lynch. I like the world building, like the little touches here and there that make the place, like make the make the story kind of immersive. And on the surface, this movie is very simplistic. You know, there is, um, you know, you you have your you have your your hero. You've got your damsel in distress. You've got your clear cut villain. And how is he going to you know try to save the day here? And that's basically what this is. And then you add in. Everything that makes David Lynch, David Lynch, with, you know, shots of, like, bugs crawling on the ground and, oh, look, there's an ear and a tracking shot that goes into the ear. And it just gets stranger in there. You have a, a villain who likes to breathe amyl nitrate and call himself baby. And there's a lot of violence and a lot of odd sexual things going on. But this movie is just – this movie is fairly – linear in its progression is it doesn't really sidetrack all that much it goes it moves along for a two-hour movie fairly quickly um and it keeps you interested in what's going on it's 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 somewhat layered even though i would say that i find some of the acting a little stilted at times especially like kyle mclaughlin and uh isabella i mean and isabella rosalini which is talking point, to though? each other isn't that the point i think that i think that might be. I think that's. I think he's going. For, I think it's done intentionally um, throughout this. It, it's. But it was a little jarring at first to get used to how they talk. You know. Uh, but overall, I I enjoyed this. Uh, Hermano, I, I imagine you saw a lot of a lot of parallels between this and uh, Twin Peaks. I did. Um, you know, this wasn't my first time watching it either. I think this is maybe my second, possibly third viewing. And um, having watched a lot of David Lynch recently with, you know, Twin Peaks The Return, I, I recently revisited in the last couple of years. I feel like he tends to revisit similar themes in a lot of those 
uh, shows like the idea of, like Mark said, like kind of like small town Americana, people having their eyes opened to a side of life they weren't, ex you know, uh, hadn't experienced prior. Uh, like you're basically watching this this film through the eyes of Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern as, you know, their I forget who the lady was. Was she like their aunt or their grandmother or something? And she basically like as he's going out one day, she's like, "Oh, you're not going to near Lincoln Street, are you?" And he's like, "No, no, no, I'm not going anywhere near there." And it, it just kind of I feel like that's relatable to a lot of people. Like when you're younger, you you know, even if you live in a really nice area, everyone has that. You know, their parents would tell them to stay away from a certain street or a certain part of town or something like that. And, you know, I feel like this film is kind of exploring uh, that, like the idea that Kyle McLaughlin, uh, you know, I think he, he poses the question to <laughs> Laura Dern at one point, like, how about like, why are they, why they're I forget exactly how he words it, but essentially he's like, why, why is there, you know, bad people in the world or something like that? Um, and yeah, he's he's definitely explored that with uh, other films and stuff like that, and, and especially with Twin Peaks: The Return. There was that episode eight with um, set in like the fifties, I believe, Mark. Right, like in it's supposed to um, be reminiscent of like kind of like the uh, birth of the atomic bomb and right. essentially like the birth yeah. of evil. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I I feel like he explores that like kind of a loss of innocence in a sense. Um, and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the film watching it this time again. I think this is probably my favorite Dennis Hopper performance. But as I was watching it, I feel like Dean Stockwell gives him a run for his money. Oh, my mm. God. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Dean Stockwell is doing something so very special in this film. And for such like, a short amount of time. Yeah, he makes the absolute best of his time. You have like, no... Hermano, I literally wrote down Dean Stockwell deserved an Oscar. <laughs> he was amazing in this. Like he he's doing something like I don't know if David Lynch directed him this way or if he just said like this is what I interpret this character as. Like, but it is something else, man. And it's memorable. And that's one of the greatest things I will attribute to David Lynch. Like he gets amazing, memorable performances. Even if I don't always remember specific details or plot elements like I'll, I'll remember things like bobby peru and wild at heart i'll remember guys like dean sockwell in this film and, and dennis hopper and, you know uh uh john hurt from the elephant man or even um is it uh larry nance no jack uh, he, nance jack nance sorry <laughs> larry nance is the basketball player Play for the Cavs. Uh, <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> yeah jack nance in, in Eraserhead. like you know i i just he's great at that like just making really compelling uh, memorable characters and you know Dave Lynch is a legend I mean not too many people have like an entire film feel attributed to them like you know there's there's Lynchian there's like Kubrickian there's Hitchcockian I mean Spielbergian how many how many directors can you know claim that you know what I mean so yeah a huge fan of this film really glad to revisit it again it's interesting that you mentioned Dean Stockwell because it his character, there, there's a lot more layers to his character than what might seem apparent at first because Agreed. he's he's interacting with an agent of chaos. And it seems like he's the only person who has successfully been able to to work with this 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 agent and and how he is able to 
to communicate with him on multiple levels is is fascinating. It's fascinating. And then that the the lip sync, it's it's interesting hmm. coming off of recently watching and talking about for the show Mulholland Drive how singing is so key in these two films. It's like a, a portal into people's psyches and and the moods that uh, that is are being expressed at those moments. It's really amazing. Uh, and this is probably my favorite Lynch film to date because it is his most accessible. It, that's the thing that I've I've struggled with so much on a number of his other films when it comes to Mulholland Drive and Eraserhead, for example, it, it, is that I, I just I have such a hard time connecting and digging into it because I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't know what he's trying to say to me. <laughs> I don't get it. Mm. And this, it's it's. I was stunned. This is the second time I had seen this movie. And I, the first time, I don't remember. It was years ago. And I didn't remember much from the film. And I I was struck with how straightforward this movie is. And, and it has moments that I'm familiar with of, of his filmography, but they, they aren't nearly as obtuse or off-putting to me. Uh, it's it's a very digestible plot that still it displays that rot on the underside of this this seemingly wholesome and reputable town uh in but it also shows that no one's untouched from immorality like you said mark no matter how much they try to distance or shield themselves from it um i think laura dern has maybe the best cry face ever (laughs) oh my goodness her mouth (laughs) we need to talk about the shape of her mouth like it looks like a figure eight it's insane yeah yeah it's it just sucks you in it's just amazing you just start to break along with her and she shows it like twice it's she was 18 years old in this movie it's it's amazing uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think everybody here is is really good in their performances, and the editing too. The editing is really, really great. I think the the famous edit of of Hopper uh, as just before they go on the joyride, where it just cuts, you know, to just disappears. Room. Just disappears. Yeah, he's <laughs> gone. Yeah, it, it's it's almost. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of like a Looney Tunes cartoon, where yep. in, mm. in a cartoon you would hear the. <laughs> and uh but it, i had that in my mind while seeing that and I, I i wouldn't be surprised if if lynch also had that in mind of of trying to call make a call back to uh, old old cartoons of the of the 40s and 50s mark I, I assume you have a lot to say about dennis hopper yeah he i mean he was he was basically, from what I understand, his career was almost over at this point. Mm. Um, but he was absolutely committed to this role. I mean, it, if if I was going to pick, other than a Dean Stockwell in a bit part, a, a favorite performance, it is his just absolutely manic but committed uh, performance. He, he and I mean Isabella Rossellini. I can understand Walter's reservations with her, um, but I, I do think she's committed to the performance also it is stilted but um she's committed and, I, and dennis hopper is just totally in uh on this film i i think it's he's such a presence he's so scary and off-putting but like you said dean stockwell's characters at ben uh works with him and uh you know the man in the yellow jacket does as well so it i i love in this how you don't really have a sense of where everyone everyone fits even detective williams you have to wonder about 
um, Sandy's father. You know, how much does he really know? He acts surprised, but um, I, I think that's what you know Lynch is kind of asking here is, uh, and and even you know getting getting with Hopper, he. Um, well, I, it's probably a, a bit of a spoiler later convention. No, but, um, we don't. I don't think we know, have to worry about spoilers. It's really hard to spoil this film, and and it's, it's true. It's yeah. so old and and well known. Well, just the you know the mask that that he's wearing later, and you you can kind of tell early, even if you you know haven't seen it before or don't remember, um, you know that he is more than just the person that 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 he puts on. I mean, he wears many, many faces. I, and I, I love, um, the, not the, the, it's really the second time that you see Hopper, but you, you get a sense of how, um, Frank's character, uh, was introduced to, um, Dorothy. He, he probably saw her in the club and that's how he chose her, um, for this, you know, this, this dark idea that he had for her. Um, and, but he's also, he's a, a man that seems to love art, uh, listening to, you know, Roy Orbison. He's he, some, at least somewhat, I guess, of a, of a cultured man in some respects, even though he does drink Pabst Blue Ribbon, which is, you know, absolute swill, but Hey, you know, it's, he, he likes what he likes. Yeah. Uh, Wally, is, is there anything else that, that sticks out to you? Uh, well, well, I'm. I kind of wish they were. I mean, it, it, you. I mean, you do see that uh, Frank Booth has got that weird um, <laughs> predation for having a, a a tank of of something somewhere where he's breathing shit in from a mask. And though I am, I, I do think it was the right move to change it from what Lynch originally had in mind, which was supposed to be helium. Mm. Um, I think it's a good idea that he changed that because I think that here. I mean, it would have been probably way too funny to hear Dennis Hopper. With a helium voice, and I'll fuck anything that moves. <laughs> like that—that that would be weird. Um, it's—it's uh, it's interesting too. Like, just I guess the way, like one of the things that I mean, picked up on too, is just how Isabella Rossellini just, just talks in this movie, and I think it's because you know English being her second language, um, and probably even the direction of 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 Lynch himself. Just it just seemed everything just seems just just slightly out of place. Like when you are looking at, um, like a like a, a square tile grid, and like one of the tiles is just not quite lined up with everything else, hmm. and I think that adds to the overall kind of just off balanceness of this. But that's also something I've kind of expected from David Lynch. It's nothing's really there's always something kind of off kilter about it. Hmm. Um, I liked the twist with the with the car that I thought was really cool. Um, because it's a, it's a very interesting callback to something that you may have missed earlier, you know, uh, when he goes to pick up Laura Dern and he's late and her boyfriend sees him. And then later on, you think it's Frank that's chasing him in his car, but it's actually her ex-boyfriend chasing, chasing her in his car. And then Dorothy shows up magically, um, all, you know, all kinds of messed up and, you know, yeah. I, I would I, I would say see her uh, at first, you know, she when she shows up, she's kind of like an apparition. She just kind of floats in. It's kind of appears there. Yeah. You don't notice. I, I didn't notice her first till Mike points her out. Hmm. Yeah. And then and then you've got, uh, you know, that, you know, I mean, and that's, you know, even, you know, preceded by them at the party, confessing how much they love each other, which is very a fast moving relationship. And I'd also say a very oddly stable relationship, given everything that's going on right now. Um <laughs> I would say that most people who just meet, you know, who just meet only a few weeks earlier, go to a party, confess their love to each other, and then 
a, a messed up naked lady shows up uh, and is confessing all sorts of other shit. Like basically, uh, she blows up uh, Jeffrey Beaumont's spot in in front of his now girlfriend. I, I kind of want to. Show, there was, I wonder if there's a director's cut out there that like has more stuff in it because I I really feel that there's some hmm. pieces missing here and there that that I think might make things help other things other things make a little bit more sense. The the Blu-ray has a, a supplement, and I think the Criterion actually has more. I haven't dug into like looking at comparing the two, but there's about thirty or I'm sorry, like forty to fifty minutes of additional footage on the Blu-ray. Interesting. See, that's what I want to see. Yeah. The uh, the lost footage it's called fifty three minutes of deleted scenes and alternate takes so mm-hmm. there's definitely more there. Uh, Hermano, are there any other performances that stuck out to you? Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear that you know Wally didn't like uh, Isabella Rossellini in this. I I thought she was pretty solid. Like uh, considering what her character is going through, I think she played it about as well as she could have. I mean, she's obviously been severely emotionally abused as well as physically abused by the Dennis Hopper character. She's has uh, Dennis Hopper's dangling, you know, her husband and her son over her head uh, throughout the entire film. And you can tell that she's been psychologically scarred by this. Like she's, you know, at the whim of a madman, essentially, that it has some very particular taste in, uh, you know, things that he it's so likes f- and wants out of women. It's so funny you say at the whim of a madman, because that's the line that he uses in speed. And it, it's kind of remarkable how similar the two characters are. Yeah, I I mean, <laughs> I'd love it if Frank Booth was actually the bad guy in speed as well. <laughs> uh, that that would have made the film... Uh, much much better uh a, a film that i already love much much better um but yeah I, I thought her performance was absolutely fine like uh, it's not on the level of dean stockwell and, and dennis hopper but you know I, i'd say she had the th- at least the third best performance in the film uh certainly has more to do than you know the audience surrogates that are like you know Kyle mclaughlin and um Laura Dern, but um, well, what if we what if we start uh, debating the better performance, uh, Kyle McLaughlin in this or Kyle McLaughlin in Showgirls? <laughs> they're, kind of the, should... they're kind of the same Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, <laughs> not really. Uh, I, I I I wish Kyle McLaughlin would just have stayed David Lynch's muse and <laughs> never done Showgirls. He was slumming it in that. I, I, I bet you. you he wishes that too. How dare you? Showgirls is a masterpiece. I rated Showgirls half a star higher than Blue Velvet. Oh, my God. Bold move, Tim. Five stars. Five stars for, for Showgirls. Come on. Five stars. Never seen it. Game is, uh, is <gasps> epic. Mark, Mark, you've never seen Showgirls? I know. Oh, Some, Mark. Someday. Mark. Mark's waiting for the Criterion like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll happen. I swear to God, that movie needs to be a Criterion film. Oh, my God. I, I don't know how much more I have to add because it, it's, like I've said, it's a it's a straightforward film in terms of its plot. And and it, it does have those Lynchian moments, but it, they ne- like I've said, they never keep me off uh, from from engaging with this film. It's interesting, the like this sex scene between McLaughlin and, and Rosalini in which... You know, he finally hits her, and then it turns into this like tiger growl and slow. It's Godzilla. <laughs> oh, okay, an uber slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that that is, it, it, I, 
I don't know. I, I I get what he's doing there. I get that he's he's succumbing to the the animalistic uh, urges in, inside of him. That's latent in anybody in this town, I guess. One, one of the things he does very interestingly is how he lays out rooms and how still a lot of people are, whether yes. they're sitting or standing. Like you, the the room where uh, Dean Stockwell is in, or. The, the room towards the end of the movie when there's the uh, police officer who's been shot along with the the dead the dead husband the, the the way those are framed is just it's so interesting and the the colors and the like the the curtains the the pattern on the curtains and the and the the color palette of those as well with the the carpet it's so it it's so David Lynch it's really interesting how he's able to craft a a form there, a, a style there that is so unique, uniquely him. <laughs> yeah, I think the I think they said that was the first time, and I kept thinking they were blue, but they were uh, within Dorothy's apartment. They're red curtains, hmm. and you see. I I feel like you you were talking about Tim how this uh, informs um, Twin Peaks to an extent. I I certainly think it does, especially watching it now. Um, you see there, there's some parallels to Bob, uh, the character of Bob in, um, which is just, you know, really important to, um, the, you know, the Twin Peaks and that, that theme of, um, the animal instincts, you know, the nature of evil. I think that's, you know, maybe the, the number one thing he's trying to get at is really what is the nature of evil. And the, I, I think it's kind of that first time when you see, you see it twice, the, at least twice, the, um, the curtains billowing, it's kind of that evil, evil is out there and evil coming in, uh, into the room. Where does evil come from? You know, how does, uh, how does it come to the forefront? What makes people, um, kind of turn evil? And it, it it's like, um, th- this film had a, I remember it, it kind of stuck with me from the first time, uh, a, a real influence on me in that whenever I go to, especially schools, uh, school events or community events, and I see someone that, maybe I, I know or think I know, or it's just an acquaintance. And I just, I, it makes me think about them. Like, are they doing anything shady? What skeletons do they have in their closet? What is, you know, what's their kind of evil side, um, you know, that, that they have. And it, that's, to me, that's the, the blue velvet and Twin Peaks influence that he's, he's made me look in those, those crevices, those creases and kind of consider those things in my everyday life for better, or for worse. <laughs> Uh, Hermano, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think I maybe we should end on this. Um, I got to admit, at the end of this film, I was reminded of a Martin Scorsese ending to one of his films, The Departed, specifically, with a certain <laughs> animal running across the railing. Oh, the bird? With to the... end the film. <laughs> the bird with a beetle in its mouth. And I was like, hmm, I had forgotten about that. But, but you know what? That's, that's only how... That's... How love just conquers darkness. Yeah, it is, it is a callback to the the story that Laura Dern tells Kyle MacLachlan about. Um, I, don't, I think it's a dream of hers or something like that. Yep. Um, right. But th- this is the difference. These are two well-regarded <laughs> filmmakers, but one handles it so deftly, and the other one so fucking fumbled. Because <laughs> I think the Robin thing, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a bookend to the way the film opens, obviously. You see... The Beatles are represented as the, the things you know crawling underneath the surface, and you know, you know, I I, I like the idea of like you know calling back to her story, and 
you know, it's reminiscent of something. I, I know in The Departed, it's like, you know, Jack Nicholson's character is so afraid of rats and and he ends up being a rat himself, uh, you know, at the end. And then to, to close on that with the rat, it just felt like such a... Why am I harping on this again? But, but <laughs> Habano, which film won Best Picture? Huh? 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 Mm. Mm. Yeah, but... <laughs> Which which guy has The Departed as the film you won for Best Picture? Yeah, that's right, Tim. The Departed <laughs> is a trash film. I wouldn't be proud of that. Wow. That's like a participation trophy. Hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, the the line, uh, Sandy's line is, there's trouble till the Robins come. So, yeah, and there, there's definitely that bookend to, uh, you know, the, the blue sky, the white picket fence at the end. It, it is a happy end at the end too, which is somewhat surprising. I think for a, a Lynch film, I don't really uh, expect him to, uh, to end that way. During the joyride yeah. scene, it's rather remarkable how Lynch is able to capture the momentum and the fear when the camera is just inside the car and showing the, the characters faces and not showing anything else. He shows more action quote unquote in the false car chase that is the, the, the boyfriend, the, the, the football player, uh, than he does in that scene. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting the way, like I said, the editing is wonderful in this movie. So the way he, he is able to capture the fear, and you feel the fear along with Kyle MacLachlan during that joyride. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're ready to get into grades? Let's get into grades. Yeah. Mark? Well, I would give it uh, an A plus, but you know, I, I guess if, if I'm gonna save an A plus for a Lynch film, for me, it's it's Mulholland Drive. So it, I think the he certainly lays the groundwork for some of his best work in Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive. Probably still my favorite work. So I'm I'm gonna give it a solid A. It's wonderful. Wally, I give this a solid A as well. I think that uh, you guys are right. This is a good introduction to. David Lynch, because you could show somebody this and go, all right, so this is, you like this, right? It's going to get weirder from here. <laughs> so mm-hmm. be ready. And then you show them a racer head. No, no, <laughs> no, stop it. I would I would honestly say after this, Wild at Heart. Uh, I love Wild at Heart. I was so glad Hermano recommended that movie to me. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give this movie, guess what, guys? I'm giving a David Lynch movie an A. Can you believe that? Can you believe Excellent. it? Excellent. I'm giving it an A. It's it really is a, a great watch and very interesting as well. Hermano. How dare you guys only give it an A. A plus. Dean Stockwell alone <laughs> makes it a plus. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. I, I know you, I I haven't seen Elephant Man in a while, but for me, I, I that one strikes me as the most accessible. What for the me. hell are you t- Oh yes. Yeah, it probably oh, is. You're right. You're right. That that is his most uh, linear and there's only one weird quote unquote weird moment in that movie. And yeah, there's nothing really. I mean, aside from the main character himself and his, you know, what he, you know, how he's, like the way he looks, I guess. But like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like otherwise you're you're pretty much it's a based on a real events. He doesn't really stray that far. Yeah, I he don't doesn't add a lot of Lynchy and stuff in it. I don't. Well, the, the straight find... story is also. I mean, oh yeah, that's probably I... even less weird. Um, but you know, except for maybe the very beginning. But I, I guess when, when I say it's a good introduction, it's it's a good introduction to like what I would call maybe the true Lynch. Yeah, um, straight know, story. Is Lynch. Like, yeah. yeah, straight story. It probably yes, most accessible. But again, it's not really touching what he's really known for. I mean, I, I after straight story for me, it would be Elephant Man, then probably Blue Velvet, and then that I think Blue Velvet is where people would start being like, 
Wow, this guy's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that does it for this episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Donate via patreon.com slash first time watchers or buy stuff at zazzle.com slash first time watchers. And talk to us on Twitter at 1stTimeWatchers on Twitter. Or write us at our email, firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Uh, download our episodes on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Feel free to leave a review because we'd love feedback. If you have any suggestions of movies for us to watch, please send a tweet or an email. Speaking of suggestions, let's recommend a movie. Mark. Well, I'm going to stick with David Lynch, and I'm going to go with uh, maybe the film that is uh, widely regarded as his worst, and I, I don't agree. Uh, maybe it is, but I, I love it. Um, and, you know, with the new one coming from our man, Denis Villeneuve, in 2020, why not watch or rewatch this strange but endearing version of Dune? Um, this was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound, came out in 1984, um, I mean, Lynch and sound, he's, uh, we talked about it during, during this review. It's very important to his films and it features a wonderful soundtrack that I, I recommend. Even if you haven't seen the movie, haven't seen it for a while, check it out on Spotify. It's by Toto, eighties <laughs> band who they never did another soundtrack probably because the movie wasn't very successful. Um, but it really is great. It uh, features cinematography by Freddie Francis who did Lawrence of Arabia so, you know, two two years before Blue Velvet, such an odd take on that movie. I've seen it many times. There's an extended cut out there um, that is missing the special effects like the blue eyes from the Fremen, but, you know, kind of expands um, on the, you know, I guess maybe a little closer to the book. It's 137 or 177 minutes versus 137 uh, that people felt was very chopped and couldn't really tell the story. So, hey, that's why we're getting two movies for uh, Dune from what I understand from Villeneuve. So I recommend David Lynch's Dune. It's one of my favorite movies. Nice. Uh, nice. So with uh, my, my best of decade catch up, I also rewatched uh, Chan Wook Park's 2013 film Stoker, a film that we talked about on this very podcast. God knows yep. how long ago, uh, but uh, after, uh, India, who play, is played by Mia Wasikowska, her father dies. Her uncle Charlie, whom she never knew existed, comes to live with her and her unstable mother, played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, she comes to suspect this mysterious and charming man has ulterior motives and becomes increasingly infatuated with him. Uh, I remembered oh, next to nothing about this movie. Not and even the shower scene? No. <laughs> no. I, I literally only remembered a piano, and that's it. That's the only thing I remembered. Uh, and I all, However, I did remember my opinion uh, on first watch wasn't as high as both of you. Um, but on this rewatch, it's great. It's, I, I loved it. It's oddly fascinating. It, some amazing editing choices, uh, along with the sound design. Um, the, the main character seems to have this auditory sensitivity, and the sound design really helps uh, get in her headspace. It's it's kind of a thriller, but it really doesn't really clue you in until about halfway through. And and uh, Chanwick Park uses some amazing transitions, and there's this one of the best transitions I've ever seen that that goes from like uh, a brushing hair into a field of long grass, and it's it's stunning. It's stunning. Um, Matthew Good plays the 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 uncle that comes in and he, the way he styled and dressed reminded me of Norman Bates. And I bet that is 100 intentional by, by uh, Chanwick Park uh, because there is a Hitchcockian vibe to this movie overall. 
Uh, you could also title this film The Birth of a Psychopath. <laughs> yep. Um, it's it's great and is on the periphery of my top 25. It might ha- has a chance of sneaking in uh, uh, best of the decade, but uh, I don't know. It, it's still really good. I recommend Stoker. Uh, Wally. All right. So we're going to take you in the little way back machine for a minute uh, because I was like, oh, what other movies can I think of that involve hostages that might be worth – and of course, there's one that immediately came to mind, and that we talked about this back in episode 268. And it's from 1974, the taking of Pelham 123. In New York, armed men hijack a subway car and demand a ransom for passengers, even if it's paid. How could they get away? Directed by Joseph Sargent, starring Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. This movie is just fun. This movie is a is a fun uh, cop movie, you know, chasing bad guy, figuring out the figuring out the case and to this day, still one of my favorite endings for a movie ever ever made. I, I some people gave me some people on, on Twitter gave me a little bit of a little bit of rational shit for it. I absolutely think it's brilliant how it's it's all put together in the end. Um, so I would highly recommend seeing the 1974 version of Taking a Pelham One Two Three. Hermano. All right, I have an anti recommendation. <laughs> Haven't done one of these in a while, but Mark kind of brought up the idea that. Um, Dennis Hopper's career was almost over around the time that David Lynch cast him for Blue Velvet. And I remember hearing that as far back as Easy Rider, he was, you know, difficult to work with. He was kind of a method actor, rubbed it a lot of people the wrong way, burnt a lot of bridges, all that type of stuff. And um, this film might uh, be the reason why he took this role. And I mean, his reputation might be the reason that he took this role. In 1993, Super Mario Brothers... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, two Brooklyn plumbers, Mario and Luigi, must travel to another dimension to rescue a princess from the evil dictator King Koopa and stop him from taking over the world. Now, Dennis Hopper played King Koopa. Um, you <laughs> say what you will about that casting. Right. Um, you can say what you will about that casting, but I think they knocked it out of the park with the roles of Mario and Luigi. Bob Hoskins as Mario and John Leguizamo as Luigi. That's solid casting, <laughs> in my opinion. That's the only reason I would say watch this film. But aside from that, it's terrible. As a kid, I remember being so disappointed. I may have even cried at the idea that this is what people, <laughs> like adults, thought Mario and Luigi were. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, there is a, a part of me that's a bit curious to go back and revisit it. But it is sitting at a, an average of exactly four stars on IMDb out of ten. So... Anti-recommendation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure as always, guys. Where can people find you online? On Twitter, at Mark Herney, H-U-R-N-E, Letterbox 2. And I do recommend uh, following the 25th frame on Twitter. It's at frame underscore 25th, 25th. And uh, just check out the the website. It's 25thframemedia.com. All right, and stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be discussing the 1990 Abel Ferrara film, King of New York. As a first time watchers podcast, because we like to watch. Then I drift away into the magic night. I softly say a silent prayer.
<laughs> I hate them so, but you knew that. Yeah, I know. I know. Hey, look! Uh, in a couple of weeks, I hate your team. in a couple of weeks, the Bills and the Pats will both be three and zero and be facing off in Buffalo. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's the way it looks right now. Um, you know, we'll see. My uh, the Bills have to beat Wally's team first, so the Bills have to beat the Steelers. No problem. Oh no! I thought they were playing. I thought Wally's team was the Bengals. Oh yeah, yeah the no? Bengals. Yeah. Well, he he likes both for some reason. He's oh demented like that. <laughs> He's it's like you also liking the Jets. It, it makes no sense. I don't like the Jets. Yeah. What's that? I don't like. No, the it's Jets. like if you also like the Jets. Oh, if I yes, I do not. Yeah, yeah. I don't hate them like the Pat. Like I don't hate either AFC East team as much as the Pats. But if you ask Bills fans in in the nineteen seventies who they hated, of course it would be the Dolphins. But <laughs> they're they're just pitiful right now, and you don't quite. You, you can't hate them quite. So. It's it's amusing uh, looking at Twitter on Sunday when the Dolphins play on uh, on Barry at Hiro and and uh, <laughs> oh, DJ no. Valentine. I forgot about and, them and, and oh. Kevin. They're 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 fun going back and forth and listening to uh, or, or, or uh. reading their their comments on what a pitiful team they. <laughs> they're watching i'll have to subscribe i i don't know if you, i don't even watch i mean what's the point really i guess you know? i have no idea I mean, you're totally just i mean i i didn't really think teams truly tanked but man what you, I, I just i don't know i didn't subscribe to it but it apparently it's true really you don't think teams truly tank? don't you remember the the uh the colts when Peyton Manning was injured, and uh, they they tanked for Andrew Luck. Um, uh, yeah. And then uh, no yeah. teams teams tank all the time, man. Yeah, I get. I guess. I mean, I don't know. It's. I, I guess maybe ownership tanks. Obviously, the players don't. Right. Exactly. But, you know, some somebody made a good point today, and I was kind of thinking about it. And he he said it straight a bit where. It's one of the commentators saying, you know, the players still have something to play for. It's not just pride, but it's future jobs. I mean, you're basically, you know, by 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 playing on the field, you are setting your resume via tape, you know, for playing uh, for future teams. Yes. So. Hey, Hermano. Hello. How's it going, sir? Good. Yourself? Good. Good evening. We were just talking football. There's Walter. Yes, I, evening, I am. Don't talk. Don't talk fo- uh, football in front of Wally. You know he'll, he'll bring up what the the, the fucking Patriots. The Patriots yeah. wishing for their downfall, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Oh, we, you we already talked I, about that. With, yeah, yeah, I've I've stopped wishing for it because it's a foregone conclusion. It's <laughs> going to happen to you, right? Eventually. <laughs> oh God, forbid! Uh, a player's going to retire, and then uh, then the team's and not going to be as good anymore. House, Go figure. <laughs> House of, House of Cards is going to come crashing down, and then people like me are going to come out of the woodwork, and I'm going to savor every minute of rubbing it in your face about how you're not good anymore and how you used to be something. And you're going to be like, we go six Super Bowls. I go, yeah, you did. Too bad that was then, and this is now. What have you done lately? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's going to be glorious. Okay. Well, he's going to be so disappointed so, when they get another system quarterback, and right. like he's like just as good as Brady, and the dynasty <laughs> will continue. It's not going to happen. I, I might no kill way, myself. There's no, no, there is no way you hit gold two times in a row. I don't know. This Jared Stidham kid looks kind of good. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Anyway, I hope, I hope not. We, I was talking about the my Bills play your Bengals this weekend, Walter, in in Buffalo, home home opener in Buffalo. Oh, uh, see, the Bengals are what, one and one? Oh, and two. Is that right? I forget. No, they're own two. 
Oh, and two. All right. So yeah, well, uh, congratulations because they are the Bengals. If they pull up, if they pull a win in, in Buffalo, uh, I I would be surprised. Never know. Yeah. Weirder things have happened. Yep. Personally, I love to see when the when the Patriots like remake, you know, find face the Dolphins again at Gillette that the Dolphins pull some sort of crazy upset and ruin a freaking perfect season. Oh, uh, it would be it would be. Oh, uh, I would love even if it was just by one point. I'd be like, ah! Honestly, I I wouldn't even want to see a perfect season. It doesn't matter to me. I it doesn't matter. No, no, no. What's what? No, I I would, I would just a championship is just as as satisfying as a perfect season. What does a perfect season mean? It doesn't mean anything. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Is that sour grapes from the almost perfect season? I think it's. I think well, it no, it's a lesson from that almost perfect season. It's okay. That, that would be the other thing that would also bring me nothing but joys that they they go nearly undefeated again, only to get stopped by the Giants a as, third time. As that would, that would be glorious as well. As a fan, it's it's unbearable as the season progresses and the playoffs go go out. It's not enjoyable to watch. It's not. Last season was much more fun to watch. The other seasons that they won the Super Bowl were much more enjoyable. Because there isn't that added pressure. That that season, that those playoffs in 07, that was horrible. That was horrible and painful to watch. Especially as you, as the season progressed, you could see more and more weaknesses uh, in in their offense and their defense. It was it was uh, it was nerve wracking. Nerve wracking. I mean, really, last year, last the last year we guys won was a complete aberration. You okay. played a team that did not belong there. Okay. Literally did not belong there. There was the best. The Rams had no business being in the Super Bowl. Okay, none. Okay, you you, you play who you play. That's all. Yeah, because you guys get by on luck. Okay, you know he's <laughs> retiring. They they get okay. by on cheating. That's okay. I I I still claim cheating uh-huh. happens. Yep. I mean, it happened twice. Of you know, I'm sure it's still happening. Okay. The Patriots. I think all teams cheat. I think the Patriots are just really bad at it. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> or bad at hiding it. Might be. I don't know. Hubris. Except the Dolphins. They don't cheat. They just suck. <laughs> oh, God. I, has anybody checked on Barry? <laughs> I was just saying before you got out that it's, it's really funny to, to watch their, their Twitter feed uh, go back and forth to our <laughs> Dolphins games. It's like, it's like they're self-immolating. It's really funny. <laughs> I need I need to start paying attention. That's yeah. that's got to be awesome. I, I I was I was telling Tim, I, I don't I wouldn't even watch. You know, it'd be too painful at this point. Oh, that's the thing. Yeah, once uh, once the Patriots uh, suck again, I, I'm not gonna watch. I'm I'm a, I'm admittedly a fair weather fan, and I've just happened to be pretty lucky for the past twenty years. <laughs> all right, how's my audio level? You, you sound great as always, Mark. Uh, are, are dulcet you, tones. Are you hard? Oh, so hard, Mark. Excellent. Please, I've been hard all Good. day thinking about this. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Tim's got his own his own little canister of amyl nitrate with him. 